Okay, so, so actually the billing of this was Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is another name for Christ. Um, and that's probably all I'm going to say about that particular aspect. Uh, because it seemed to me that coming out of this particular incident in the life of Jesus, more you know, really worthwhile recording, was what happened when the woman met Jesus. This seemed to be so much more a sort of strength of how the story moves on and, and possibly slightly more relevant. We, we accept that Jesus is the Christ. We say Jesus Christ, the Son of God, don't we? How then do we speak? And how did Jesus speak as he met individuals? So, we ourselves meet God in, in the ordinary comings and goings of our life very often. But God makes each encounter with people who we meet extraordinary. So there was the woman. It was her regular job. She was hauling the clay pots back and forwards, to and fro. John says that Jesus was sitting by the well and the rather weary lady turns up for her tedious task. And two tired and hot people, it was full noon, don't forget, exchange greetings. There had been a row long ago, and a woman recognises, as she later talks about the argument about rebuilding Jerusalem back in Ezra and Nehemiah's time. This is why Samaria was a bit of a no-go area. The high priest's grandson had married Sambalak's daughter. So what, you say? Well, if you look it up, it will explain that this was a very bad thing. The association of the two groups of people discontinued and the Samaritans walked out of the temple in Jerusalem and decided they could worship just as well in the mountain Gerizim. Okay. And so the, the, the division, uh, begun by Sambala, who's saying, you should have no business to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. What are you doing? You know. Um, yeah, well, there we go. Some of these arguments can last a while. So... Uh, this, I think, was the beginning of a change, but that's, that's just supposition rather than anything else. So our conversation is therefore very unexpected. All sorts of reasons, for goodness sake. A man talking and a woman in this society? Whatever next, you know, in public? Oh, goodness me. Not a typical thing to be doing. And then to engage in proper conversation, not, hello, how are you? No, stop. Yes. They were both hot and tired, that probably would have made both of them feel a bit grumpy. Remember, Jesus was human. Do not forget that part of Jesus' life, the understanding of our human weaknesses. So the lady should have been busy getting on with collecting the water, not gossiping, not stopping. There was this national enmity, which I've just explained a little bit. And here was a woman on her own, not doing the socially accepted thing. She was a misfit. So we see Jesus starting off with sympathy, and then there's some curiosity, and then in her the desire for rest ultimately and satisfaction. And finally her conscience gets engaged. So sympathy starts it off. Well, it's her sympathy actually, isn't it? Because Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Well, it sounds like a good start on a, hot and, uh, on a hot day. The conversation moves along quite rapidly 
from the everyday need to talking about the current political situation and relating to foreigners. And then, because of what Jesus says, the woman's surprise opens her curiosity. What's going on here? Because Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So where is this gentle conversation going? What on earth is he talking about, thinks the woman. But it's a really good start, isn't it? It's a riddle. It's a puzzle. It's not an obvious line of thinking, but just enough to make her listen with more care. Mystery, astonishment, something new, not routine. Listen up. Open your mind. Jesus is not in a hurry. It was a most amazing privilege to sit with him. The woman stops worrying about getting Jesus a drink. You can picture her putting down the clay pot to think about what he's saying. What a privilege it is to sit and listen to Jesus, to talk through the issue so carefully. So living water can be a living spring bubbling out of the hillside. Long ago, my mum's, one of my mother's memories was going as a, a little dot to collect water from a spring coming out of the valley by Sharpenhoe Clapper. Her granddad, who by now was a very elderly gentleman, just about as old as me, I think, with a cup of pure spring water for his tea. But this was not this water that Jesus is talking about was not the ordinary water collected by buckets and carried home with considerable care that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about water, water as such, is he? The woman has to get over this hurdle and see beyond her every day. Perplexed and mystified, she keeps turning over the riddle in her mind. Jesus gives her this. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give, they will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. Now, change of gear, certainly in the conversation, because Jesus is moving on to looking at how he meets the craving for ultimate rest and satisfaction. Sometimes we can be really surprised in conversation. We know a lot of people who struggle, who are not ready to listen. But every so often, you get a moment with somebody who wants to know a little more. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will come in them, a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. It's simple, isn't it, actually? It sounds so simple, but it's so profound. It has. Just look to me, just look to me, says Jesus. So 
in, in John, water is a most powerful symbol or sign. Um, physical water, thirsty, yes, hour later, more thirsty, and so on. Living water from Jesus gives lasting satisfaction. There is a lovely verse from the very last chapter in the Bible, which John also writes. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears says, come, let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Physically, water remains outside, can't fulfill our needs. Not as a one-stop, anyway. But living water is a source of spiritual refreshment and satisfaction from within. Water is limited in quantity and disappears when we drink it. But this living water is a self-perpetuating spring, sustaining us in eternal life. As the conversation progresses... Jesus stirs up the woman to speak about her life circumstances and her conscience gets into full alert as Jesus reveals what he knows about him. Remember, Jesus is also God. I said about the humanity, didn't I? But the deity in him. Everything is known about this woman by Jesus in God. Jesus is helping her is sharing her to herself in a gentle, loving, and perfectly timed response. Maybe she has remembered a passage from Jeremiah. My people have exchanged their glory for what has no power in it. My people have committed a double crime. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. It's a thought, isn't it? So, yeah, I did say, I did think I would do something about the Messiah. What does this have to do with Jesus the Messiah? So, Jesus explains to her that he is the Messiah in verse 26, the anointed one, the Christ. In her haste to tell her friends, the woman leaves the pot of water forgotten beside the well. I'm not actually sure she ever got around to filling that pot of water, actually, but there we go. The woman goes back, brings her friends, and in verse 39, picks it up again. Many of the people of Sychar believed in him because of the words of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So she's moving from conversation and she's coming to repentance and she's sharing her belief. It is such an enthusiastic passage. There's so much excitement. It's not sceptical, it's not hostile, because she doesn't quite understand, but she's following courageously. What is our response to Jesus' words? What is our response when we have a private encounter with Jesus? What do you want to talk to Jesus about? Don't hesitate. He's interested, he wants to know. So, I was going to leave that, park that for a little bit, remember, yeah? And think about the compassion of Jesus. This is how Jesus deals with us. Not pity, because pity really is a bit dismissive in some ways, isn't it? But a determined and positive working with a person and valuing a person for their benefit. This is exactly what Jesus was doing in his conversation with the woman. 
So this discussion comes from the way Jesus treated the Samaritan. Uh, the word compassion is a bit of a trigger word in the book that I was reading. Um, Adam, it's called The Air We Breathe, How We Come to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress and Equality. Okay, And it's written by an Australian actually called Glenn Scrivener. Um, and uh, it's one of those useful books that we have things that we take for granted in our society, but they are traced so much back to Jesus and to what God has done in Jesus. So freedom, kindness, progress, equality were not familiar aspects in the life in the world where Jesus lived. So Romans were horrendous people, actually. I mean, who puts an unwanted baby on a hillside to die? I mean, really. And, and Aristotle said that this was what you should do. Uh, there's actually a medical scroll called Infanticide and Early Treatments. And, and it had one chapter on how to recognise the newborn who was worth rearing. I mean, it just makes you feel, sorry, so, so distressed, astonished, heartbroken that this was a society that had such a response to children, let alone the elderly. We won't go there. Strict rules governed everything in, the Ju in Judaism, and pity for the undeserving generally was considered a weakness. We now consider it a virtue. Christians have taken and continue to take the part of the weak, the low, the botched, and, the make, an, and make an ideal out of antagonism. Self-preservation, the instinct of a sound life, no, that's not it. We're not happy to accept survival of the fittest. In fact, we find that something to reject. The ethics of compassion and acceptance come right down from Jesus. As we sang in our song, down and out is the direction of travel for God's love. He rescued the, grum, grum, the grumbling slaves and warns those who abandon God in the passage in Jeremiah. And Jesus becomes compassion incarnate, a human being. So Glenn Scrivener, actually, this is a quote from his book, which I've just talked about. Christians have followed in the direction of compassion throughout the years. Setting up hospitals was one of the first and most enduring works of Christians over the written, after the written Bible was complete. Where else does the Red Cross come from? Red Cross, remember? Their strapline, refusing to ignore people in crisis, is a line which Christians have no trouble in accepting. We'll go back to the woman at the well, shall we now? It's likely that after five marriages, in a man's world where she would have no options, she feels very low in self-esteem, ready to fight back, unhappy in her relationships, which never quite meet the expectations of either party. And then, Jesus arrives right on time to meet her. We learn ourselves that Jesus meets us before we know anything. 
He didn't and doesn't wait for us to be ready. Weak and rebellious, we're unable to get ourselves ready, actually, aren't we? You know? Remember what was said when Anne read in Romans chapter 5. God arrives, Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. That's the message's version of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. So Jesus arrives right on time at our point of need. He brings living water for our need. Water for washing that cleans out and the forgiveness that Jesus offers each of us, not once, but time after time, as we work in the power of his spirit to be true, true servants following his call. Water for refreshment as we drink in the word of God in the Bible and rest in his presence and the water of the Spirit. Jesus meets us in person. I've quoted Glenn Scrivener. I've used uh, another commentator for much of this, this thinking. His name has escaped me because I should have written it down. And now I'm going to quote from Delia Smith. Do not be afraid. Isaiah 43. Meeting Jesus in person. In love there can be no fear, for fear drives out perfect love. We need to grasp God's love for each of us, one to one, so his love can begin to cast out fear in our lives. Many of us spend our existence longing to be loved, to be honoured, to be precious in someone's eyes. Yet all the time, that is precisely how we are loved, by God who created each one of us totally individual, totally unique. Each of us is very special and precious in his eyes. God said, I have called you by your name. You are mine. And in conclusion, I remembered a chorus from long ago. Sums up this encounter. There is a friend who knows the worst about me, but loves me just the same. There's only one who loves like that, and Jesus is his name, his wonderful, wonderful name.